0: Section 10 of The Good Soldier A Tale of Passion This is their LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Mendetti. The Good Soldier A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford Part 3 The Second Half of Section 1 So that when he spoke of her as being the person he cared most for in the world, he naturally thought that he meant to accept Leonora, and she was just glad. It was like a father saying that he approved of a marriageable daughter. And Edward, when he realized what he was doing, curbed his tongue at once. She was just glad, and she went on being just glad. I suppose that was the most monstrously wicked thing that Ashburnham ever did in his life. And yet I am so near to all these people that I cannot think any of them wicked. It is impossible for me to think of Edward Ashburnham as anything but straight, upright, and honorable. That, I mean, is, in spite of everything, my permanent view of him. I try at times by dwelling on some of the things that he did to push that image of him away, as you might try to push aside a large pendulum. But it always comes back. The memory of his innumerable acts of kindness, of his efficiency, of his unspiteful tongue, He was such a fine fellow. So I feel myself forced to attempt to excuse him in this as in so many other things. It is, I have no doubt, a most monstrous thing to attempt to corrupt a young girl just out of a convent. But I think Edward had no idea at all of corrupting her. I believe that he simply loved her. He said that that was the way of it, and I at least believe him and i believe too that she was the only woman he ever really loved he said that that was so and he did enough to prove it and leonora said that it was so and leonora knew him to the bottom of his heart i have come to be very much of a cynic in these matters i mean that it is impossible to believe in the permanence of man's or woman's love or at any rate it is impossible to believe in the permanence of any early passion as I see it, at least with regard to man, a love affair, a love for any definite woman, is something in the nature of a widening of the experience with each new woman that a man is attracted to there appears to come a broadening of the outlook, or, if you like, an acquiring of new territory, a turn of the eyebrow, tone of the voice, a queer characteristic gesture, All these things and it is these things that cause to arise the passion of love all these things are like so many objects on the horizon of the landscape that tempt a man to walk beyond the horizon to explore he wants to get as it were behind those eyebrows with the peculiar turn as if he desired to see the world with the eyes that they overshadow he wants to hear that voice applying itself to every possible proposition, to every possible topic. He wants to see those characteristic gestures against every possible background. Of the question of the sex instinct I know very little, and I do not think that it counts for very much in a really great passion. It can be aroused by such nothings, by an untied shoelace, by a glance of the eye, in passing that i think it might be left out of the calculation i don't mean to say that any great passion can exist without a desire for consummation it seems to me to be a commonplace and to be therefore a matter of needing no comment at all it is a thing which, all its accidents that must be taken for granted as in a novel or a biography you take it for granted that the characters Have their meals with some regularity, but the real fierceness of desire, the real heat of passion, long continued in withering up the soul of a man, is the craving for identity with the woman that he loves. He desires to see with the same eyes, to touch with the same sense of touch, to hear with the same ears, to lose his identity, to be enveloped, to be supported. For whatever may be said of the relation of the sexes, there is no man who loves a woman that does not desire to come to her for the renewal of his courage, for the cutting asunder of his difficulties, and that will be the mainspring of his desire for her. We are all so afraid, we are all so alone. We all so need, from the outside, the assurance of our own worthiness to exist, so, for a time if such a passion comes to fruition the man will get what he wants he will get the moral support the encouragement the relief from the sense of loneliness the assurance of his own worth but these things pass away inevitably they pass away as the shadows pass across sundials it is sad but it is so the pages of the book will become familiar the beautiful corner of the road will have been turned too many times well this is the saddest story and yet i do believe that for every man there comes at last a woman or no that is the wrong way of formulating it for every man there comes at last a time of his life when the woman who then sets her seal upon his imagination has set her seal for good he will travel over no more horizons he will never again set the knapsack over his shoulders He will retire from those scenes. He will have gone out of the business. That, at any rate, was the case with Edward and the poor girl. It was quite literally the case. It was quite literally the case that his passions, for the mistress of the Grand Duke, for Mrs. Basil, for Little Miss Maiden, for Florence, for whom you will, these passions were merely preliminary canters compared to his final race with death for her. I am certain of that. I am not going to be so American as to say that all true love demands some sacrifice. Doesn't. But I think that love will be truer and more permanent in which self-sacrifice has been exacted. And in the case of the other women, Edward just cut in and cut them out as he did with the polo ball from under the nose of Count Baron von Loffel. I don't mean to say he didn't wear himself as thin as a lath in the endeavor to capture the other women, but over her he wore himself to rags and tatters and death, in the effort to leave her alone. And in speaking to her on that night, he wasn't, I am convinced, committing a baseness. It was as if his passion for her hadn't existed, as if the very words that he spoke, without knowing that he spoke them, created the passion as they went along, before he spoke there was nothing afterwards. It was the integral fact of his life. Well, I must be back to my story, and my story was concerning itself with Florence, with Florence, who heard those words from behind the tree. That, of course, is only conjecture, but I think the conjecture is pretty well justified. You have the fact that those two went out, that she followed them almost immediately afterwards through the darkness and a little later, she came running back to the hotel with that pallid face in the hand clutching her dress over her heart. It can't have only been Bagshaw. Her face was contorted with agony before ever her eyes fell upon me or upon him beside me. But I dare say Bagshaw may have been the determining influence in her suicide. Leonora says that she had that flask, apparently of nitrate of amyl, but actually of puracic acid for many years, and that she was determined to use it, if ever, I discovered the nature of her relationship with that fellow Jimmy. You see, the mainspring of her nature must have been vanity. There is no reason why it shouldn't have been. I guess it is vanity that makes most of us keep straight, if we do keep straight, in this world. If it had been merely a matter of Edward's relations with the girl— I dare say Florence would have faced it out. She would no doubt have made him scenes, have threatened him, have appealed to his sense of humor, to his promises. But Mr. Bagshaw and the fact that the date was the 4th of August must have been too much for her superstitious mind. You see, she had two things that she wanted. She wanted to be a great lady, installed in Branshaw Telegraph. She wanted also to retain my respect, she wanted, that is to say, to retain my respect for as long as she lived with me. I Suppose, if she had persuaded Edward, Ashburnham to bolt with her, she would have let the whole thing go with a run. Or perhaps she would have tried to exact from me a new respect for the greatness of her passion on the lines of all for love and the world well lost. That would be just like Florence. In all matrimonial associations there is, I believe, One constant factor, a desire to deceive the person with whom one lives as to some weak spot in one's character or in one's career, for it is intolerable to live constantly with one human being who perceives one's small meannesses. It is really death to do so. That is why so many marriages turn out unhappily. I, for instance, am a rather greedy man. I have a taste for good cookery and a watering tooth at the mere sound of the names of certain comestibles. If Florence had discovered this secret of mine, I should have found her knowledge of it so unbearable that I never could have supported all the other privations of the regime that she extracted from me. I'm bound to say that Florence never discovered this secret. Certainly she never alluded to it, I dare say. She never took sufficient interest in me. And the secret weakness of Florence, the weakness that she could not bear to have me discover, was just that early escapade with the fellow called Jimmy. Let me, as this is in all probability, the last time I shall mention Florence's name, dwell a little upon the change that had taken place in her psychology. She would not, I mean, have minded if I had discovered that she was the mistress of Edward Ashburnham, she would rather have liked it. Indeed, the chief trouble of poor Leonora in those days was to keep Florence from making, before me, theatrical displays, on the one line or another, of the very fact. She wanted in one mood to come rushing to me to cast herself on her knees at my feet, and to declaim a carefully arranged, frightfully emotional outpouring as to her passion." That was to show that she was like one of the great erotic women of whom history tells us. In another mood, she would desire to come to me disdainfully and to tell me that I was considerably less than a man and that what had happened was what must happen when a real male came along. She wanted to say that in cool, balanced, and sarcastic sentences. That was when she wished to appear like a heroine of a French comedy, because of course she was always play-acting. But what she didn't want me to know was the fact of her first escapade with the fellow called Jimmy. She had arrived at figuring out the sort of low-down Bowery tough that that fellow was. Do you know what it is to shudder in later life for some small stupid action? Usually for some small quite genuine piece of emotionalism of your early life. Well. It was that sort of shuddering that came over Florence, at the thought that she had surrendered to such a low fellow. I don't know that she needed have shuddered. It was her footling old uncle's work. He ought never to have taken those two round the world together, and shut himself up in his cabin for the greater part of the time. Anyhow, I am convinced that the sight of Mr. Bagshaw, and the thought that Mr. Bagshaw— For she knew that unpleasant and toad-like personality, the thought that Mr. Bagshaw would almost certainly reveal to me that he had caught her coming out of Jimmy's bedroom at five o'clock in the morning on the 4th of August, 1900. That was the determining influence in her suicide, and no doubt the effect of the date was too much for her superstitious personality. She had been born on the 4th of August, She had started to go round the world on the 4th of August. She had become a low fellow's mistress on the 4th of August. On the same day of the year she had married me. On that 4th she had lost Edward's love, and Bagshaw had appeared like a sinister omen, like a grin on the face of fate. It was the last straw. She ran upstairs, arranged herself decoratively upon her bed, She was a sweetly pretty woman with smooth pink and white cheeks, long hair, the eyelashes falling like a tiny curtain on her cheeks. She drank a little phial of puracic acid, and there she lay. Oh, extremely charming and clear-cut, looking with a puzzled expression at the electric light bulb that hung from the ceiling, or perhaps through it, to the stars above, who knows. Anyhow, there was an end of florence you have no idea how quite extraordinarily for me that was the end of florence from that day to this i have never given her another thought i have not bestowed upon her so much as a sigh of course when it has been necessary to talk about her to leonora or when for the purpose of these writings i have tried to figure her out i have thought about her as i might do about a problem in algebra but it has always been as a matter for study, not for remembrance. She just went completely out of existence, like yesterday's paper. I was so deadly tired, and I dare say that my week or ten days of effacement of what was practically catalepsy was just the repose that my exhausted nature claimed after twelve years of the repression of my instincts, after twelve years of playing the trained poodle. For that was all that I had been. I suppose that it was the shock that did it. Several shocks. But I am unwilling to attribute my feelings at that time to anything so concrete as a shock. It was a feeling so tranquil it was as if an immensely heavy, an unbearably heavy knapsack, supported upon my shoulder by straps, had fallen off and left my shoulders themselves that the straps had cut into. numb and without sensation of life i tell you i had no regret what had i to regret i suppose that my inner soul my dual personality had realized long before that florence was a personality of paper that she represented a real human being with a heart with feelings with sympathies and with emotions only as a banknote represents a certain quantity of gold I know that sort of feeling came to the surface in me the moment the man Bagshaw told me that he had seen her coming out of that fellow's bedroom. I thought suddenly that she wasn't real, that she was just a mass of talk out of guidebooks, drawings out of fashion plates. It is even possible that if that feeling had not possessed me, I should have run up sooner to her room and might have prevented her drinking the uracic acid. But I just couldn't do it would have been like chasing a scrap of paper. An occupation ennoble for a grown man. And so, as it began, so the matter has remained. I didn't care whether she had come out of that bedroom or whether she hadn't. Simply didn't interest me. Florence didn't matter. I suppose you will retort that I was in love with Nancy Ruford, and that my indifference was therefore indiscretible. Well... I am not seeking to avoid discredit. I was in love with Nancy Rufford, as I am in love with the poor child's memory, quietly and quite tenderly in my American sort of way. I had never thought about it until I heard Leonora state that I might now marry her. But from that moment until her worse than death, I do not suppose that I much thought about anything else. I don't mean to say that I sighed about her or groaned. I just wanted to marry her just as some people want to go to Carcassonne. Do you understand the feeling, the sort of feeling that you must get certain matters out of the way, smooth out certain fairly negligible complications before you can go to a place that has, during all your life, been a sort of dream city? I didn't attach much importance to my superior years. I was 45, and she, poor thing, was only just rising 22. But she was older than her years and quieter. She seemed to have an odd quality of sainthood, as if she must inevitably end in a convent with a white coif framing her face. But she had frequently told me that she had no vocation. It just simply wasn't there, the desire to become a nun. Well, I guess that I was a sort of convent myself. Seemed fairly proper that she should make her vows to me. No, I didn't see any impediment on the score of age dare say no man does, and I was pretty confident that with a little preparation I could make a young girl happy. I could spoil her, as few young girls have ever been spoiled. And I couldn't regard myself as personally repulsive. No man can, or if he ever comes to do so, that is the end of him. But as soon as I came out of my catalepsy, I seemed to perceive that my problem that what i had to do to prepare myself for getting into contact with her was just to get back into contact with life i had been kept for twelve years in a rarefied atmosphere what i then had to do was a little fighting with real life some wrestling with men of business some traveling amongst larger cities something harsh something masculine i didn't want to present myself to nancy Rufford as a sort of an old maid that is why just a fortnight after florence's suicide i set off for the united states end of part 3 section 1